Welcome to episode 52 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called JJ. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today, we're starting another writing mechanics series, and this time we are going to tackle the topic of pacing. Uh So, I guess in many ways, I think pacing is related to stakes and tension and conflict, but just to, to kind of start this discussion off, what do you think makes good pacing, quote, unquote, in a book, Kelly? Um, I, I agree with you that it's very closely tied in with tension. Um, and I also think that it is closely tied in with plot because for me, my number one pacing, when I'm reading a book and I feel like it has poor pacing, um, usually for me, that means that it's slow, a lot of times we can have books that are like too fast and too rushed and things aren't developed properly. But I feel like more often than not, when there's a pacing issue, it is that things are way too slow. And I think that a lot of times that happens when there are plot issues, because if things are happening in the plot and the plot is developing in an interesting way, then you really shouldn't have a pacing issue. Everything should be kind of advancing and furthering and becoming, you know, interesting to the reader. As it goes on, it builds and accumulates more and more attention. And then, you know, we finally reach the climax. Um, so I think when there's a poor pacing problem and it's slow, it's usually there's some kind of a plotting issue. Somehow you're stalled. You're, you can't, we're not getting from one thing to the next. And yeah, that it, that kind of goes hand in hand with a lack of tension, I think. I tend to think of pacing not necessarily always a plot issue because I feel like a lot of times there are books that I cannot put down even though a not necessarily a lot happens in them plot-wise. Mm-hmm. And I do think those books are well paced in that I I can't put it down. Like essentially, if if it's if a book that I'm reluctant to put down, I consider well paced, and that is, as we said, pretty much tied into tension. Um, because obviously, if tension is high, or tensions keep rising, then you want to keep reading to know how those tensions get resolved. But in terms of pacing, so Kelly mentioned it's either generally too rushed or too slow. For me, when a book is too slow, it's sort of, a lot of it is plot, like nothing is happening, nothing is moving the story forward. Now, moving the story forward doesn't actually necessarily mean that it has to be an action sequence or they're doing Uh -uh. something to move forward. It's just that there's a sense of growth or change that's happening in the narrative. And if I feel like that that growth is either kind of tepid or sort of flat or, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the moment for the story to begin. Because I often feel like pacing problems 
generally tend to happen in the beginning and the middles of books. Mm-hmm. More often, you get pacing issues in the middle of books. Um, that's probably the most common place where you know people talk about the sagging middle, because often it's easy to set up a conflict, but then to continually up the tension in the middle of the book is actually more difficult than setting up the conflict and resolving the conflict. So, in terms of slow pacing, what do you think are some things that you should keep in mind when you're writing? Because when we talked about troubleshooting craft, that series is sort of like after you've written a draft, then you kind of Mm -hmm. look back on it and see what you can fix. But pacing is something that I do think you should keep in mind as you draft. Mm -hmm. So if something seems or feels too slow, what do you think that you should either keep in mind or, um, you know, what are some sort of troubleshooting fixes for that kind of a thing? Troubleshooting fixes for pacing. I think that... Something that you can always do is kind of return back to your characters, to character development, because, you know, as you were saying, it doesn't always necessarily tie into plot. We don't always necessarily need something to happen in terms of, you know, the overall plot, but something needs to be happening, even if it's something incremental, some kind of growth or change, as you said. And I think we can get a lot of that growth or change through characters um, rather than, you know, big actions. And so when things are slower or quieter in your book, um, make sure that something else is developing. Is there, you know, an interaction between two characters? You know, is there a relationship changing for better or for worse? Is someone, you know, having some sort of an internal problem that, you know, you can focus on for a minute. Just give the reader something to engage with. I think when I think of poor pacing, one of the, one of the things that always comes to mind for me is the endless camping in Deathly Hallows when it just goes on and on and on and on forever. And the problem is not that they're camping and not that they are stuck there because, you know, the, the purpose of that scene, you know, from a structural standpoint is that, you know, they are stagnant, they are hopeless, they are unsure where to go or what to do or where to turn. And that's an important beat for them to hit in that story that, that Harry has kind of hit a wall, but there's nothing else happening in those scenes. And so they just seem to go on forever because we get no other development or no other growth or change while they are stuck in that place camping over and over again. And so I think if we had some kind of an additional level there or layer, that that endless sequence wouldn't bother me as much as it does. Yeah, it's an interesting point that you make. I, As I read the camping scenes, it didn't necessarily bother me. And then... As I finished the book, I was like, God, they were in that forest forever. Um, But I think it's partially because I think the whole point of those camping sequences is she spends a lot of time building the relationships between Ron, Hermione, not building because we already have them, but, you know, complicating the relationships between Harry, Han, and Ron and Hermione because of the effect of the locket it's having on them, particularly Ron, who is, Mm -hmm. you know, 
I guess, more susceptible to it. And he's becoming more irritable and snapping and, and all that sort of stuff. And that's all fine. Like that in itself is a, is fine, which is why I think when I was reading them, I didn't really notice, but then Ron leaves. Yeah. So there's a change in the status quo, which is fine. And if they had stopped camping after the moment Ron went away and moved the story or plot forward after that, it wouldn't have felt like they were camping forever. But Harry and Hermione continue to camp (laughs) until Ron comes back. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, and that's the thing is when, when things feel slow is that when something that changes the status quo happens, but then it doesn't actually change the status quo, I think that's when it feels slow because you don't feel the effects of what happened. And I do think that is often what happens in books that feel slow or that the pacing feels flat or doesn't build to anything is that things happen, but doesn't the, the things that happen don't actually affect anything else in the book. It doesn't affect the other characters' reactions or it doesn't affect what they do or even what they feel. Because I feel like after Ron left, Harry and Hermione were like, well, that kind of sucks. But we still have this greater task that we need to continue on. So, you know, it just, it didn't affect them, really. Yeah, like we get some hints, you know, that Hermione's crying herself to sleep. And, you know, we know that Harry and Ron, that like Harry doesn't say Ron's name, you know, but but they don't they don't deal with the fact that he's gone or examine it or you know they just kind of are like okay well nah. yeah i think when you think about a story moving forward a story moving forward you know things always move forward when there are changes in status quo and that should theoretically change everything that happens in the book it should change the way the characters feel and interact and what they think and what they do so when it feels slow is when things of this nature happen and then nothing actually changes. Mm-hmm. And then kind of ha- it almost feels like you're backtracking and then leading up to the next plot point. Um, so I think that is a huge problem with books that feel slower. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, there are a lot of slow-paced books that I don't actually think is necessarily a bad thing. Like... Um, the Night Circus by Aaron Morgenstern. That's not a quickly, that's not a fast paced book by any means. It's immersive. So it's, it's slower, you know, but that's just Mm. the pace that the story is told to you. Right. But that pace in and of itself isn't a problem because it works for the way that the story is being told. And it's, it remains engaging throughout. You know, I think that like anything, you can have books that are different, you know, set at different paces. Like you can have books with different tones and books in different genres and, um, a slow pace in one book is not necessarily a problem, whereas it might be in another. And I think pacing issues come when there's some kind of discrepancy or, or the, the pace isn't working for the story that you're reading. Yeah, slow-paced books don't necessarily bother me. A lot of books that I love are slower, like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Mr. Norrell mm-hmm. is definitely slower. Um, and once, But once you get into the rhythm of a lot of these books, then you sort of cease to notice how slow it is. On the other hand, the slow pace, books that I call slow and don't necessarily mean it in a positive way 
are books that just don't hold my interest, I think. It's boring. It's like a code word for boring. Yeah, it's a code word for boring because something about it is not holding my interest. It's either nothing is happening or nothing's moving the story forward or relationships aren't changing and they're stagnant or it's a lot of times I have pacing issues with books that are episodic. So mm-hmm. there, you know, there's a conflict and then it gets resolved and then there's another conflict and then it gets resolved and then there's another conflict and then it gets resolved. And those I find very easy to put down. It's not like there's a conflict and they find a solution, but then there's a complication to the conflict. So they have to find another solution. And yet there's a final, comp- you know, that, that, that sort of thing builds upon the tension and mm-hmm. therefore makes me want to keep reading. But a book that it is episodic is like, oh, here's one thing that's introduced, but then we resolve it. Ron mm-hmm. leaving and then coming back being a perfect example right. of an episode, essentially. Like if it was mm-hmm. a TV show, that would essentially be an episode. The episode, yeah. And that's why it's easy to put those down because in a sense you've been told a complete story segment and there's nothing to pull you further because the next conflict that's going to be introduced has no relationship to the contra- the the conflict that was just resolved. And the difference that you're talking about between conflicts that become complicated is that there's something that is complicating that initial conflict and dragging it forward where we haven't resolved it all the way. And so we're pulling it you know, forward and we're the reader being pulled along with it. With these episodic conflicts where that something is introduced and then solved and then something completely separate is introduced and then solved, you can walk away from that almost at any time because once it's been resolved, there's, there's nothing to carry you to the next conflict. And this is somewhat recent in terms of storytelling developments, I think, because a lot of older novels tend to be a little bit more episodic. Um, Mm -hmm. Anne of Green Gables. Yeah, Anne of Green Gables is a very episodic book. Um, A lot of Dickens can be very episodic. So it is a, a slightly more recent development in terms of storytelling and in terms of a complete novel. Now, granted... In Dickens' case, particularly, he wrote literally in episodes. He wrote installments. Right, they were published that way, yeah. You know, he wrote serially. So in that regard, that it explains why a lot of his books are like that. But I actually also find a lot of Dickens' books, despite the episodic nature, still pretty readable. A lot of that has to do with the fact that he has an overarching story in mind for most of them, for a lot of them particularly. Like... He is often credited with, you know, sort of the first mysteries or detective type novels or things like that. So he has this greater idea of a storyline. So even if the episodes resolve something small, there's still kind of a greater mystery that's holding it together. Um, So Anne of Green Gables is often the charm of Anne's life and the charm of Anne's Mm -hmm. voice is often enough to pull me through. Um, But that... Is also, you know, that's also a book that you can put down pretty easily, but also getting back into it isn't hard. Right. Um, so that's kind of what I think of when I think of a slow book, when I'm just like, I don't really, there's nothing compelling me to read, pick this back up and read it again. And even worse are the ones that I don't really feel like that are really easy to put down. And then when I pick it up again, I'm like, what just happened? What was it? Yeah. 
and you end up having to go back and read to remind yourself of what happened, and then you get bored again, and you put the book down. Yeah. I have had those, yes. Mm. Now, I feel like pacing issues often come (laughs) with pantsers, people who pants as they go, myself included, and I've never claimed that pacing or plot is a strong suit of mine, and... So keeping so it's easier, I think, for pantsers to deal with the pacing issue if they keep an end goal in mind and you're walking, working towards something. Like even if you don't know the specifics of what happens next, if you're like, "But I'm working toward this one spot or toward this uh-huh. one area." For me personally, when I'm drafting, it helps me to think to kind of break my book into acts. So, like, act one, end, act two, end, act three, end. So it's kind of an easier, like, well, I know act one ends here, so I'm going to write towards that. And then I know act two ends here, and I'm going to write towards that. That's me, of course. Not every pantser works in this way. In fact, every every writer is going to have their own method, clearly. Um, But I do think pacing issues do come up with people who don't know every, you know, every specific that happens in their book. Um... I mean, I don't know. For me, it's um, I'm always conscious of trying to up the tension in every mm-hmm. chapter or every scene. Every scene that I write has to have a point. So often what I do when I write, and particularly in book two, I, I often find myself, like I've written a 2,500-word scene, and then when I kind of go back and sort of read the chapter before and read what I had just written, realize, well, that doesn't actually move the story forward. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and then I have to cut those 2,500 words that I just wrote and then start over again and figure out what moves the story forward. Now, that's my process, and that's kind of the only way I'm able to keep myself in check. Because if I am given free reign, I'll just let my characters talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and, talk and do nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is... Um I think it's really important to trim the fat. I think that every scene in your book has a purpose, even if the purpose is really small, um, even if the scene, you know, only does one little thing, but every scene should have a purpose because again, like you are a creator, you are assembling all of these scenes deliberately and purposefully. This isn't a documentary where we're just turning a camera on and capturing everything that's there. Stories and books are constructed and every piece of it, you know, should do its part. And we talked about this a little bit when we were um, doing our Kill Your Darlings segment, um, you know, where you just kind of ax that stuff that's not working for you. But but I do think that that's, yeah, that that's important to make sure that the things that you're writing have a point. And if they don't have a point, they have to go. Yeah. Um, it either has yeah. to illuminate something about the relationship or a relationship, or it has to move the plot forward, or it has to, ideally it would do both. Mm-hmm. Every scene you write does both in some way. And that's really what keeps things moving quickly. In the case, I just speak, I'm not going to spoil it. Cricket Kingdom which I think is masterfully plotted, and it's an enormous book. I think it's over 500 pages long. So it's quite a big book, and a lot of stuff happens in it. But I find it 
perfectly placed. Because there's so much going on because, you know, she introduces us where we left off pretty much almost immediately after we've left off at the end of Six of Crows. And then it's kind of starting again. Kaz has to figure out how to get their their money back and how to rescue Inej and all this sort of stuff. And every time you think that they have a victory, something goes wrong. But then at the same time, you find out that one or, you know, Kaz has another kind of card up his sleeve to play. You know, it's like a plan within a plan within a plan. It's just masterfully constructed. And it never feels slow despite all the twists and turns in it. Because that's the other thing is that a lot of books that have a lot of twists and turns still feel slow mm-hmm. because all those twists and turns felt like a detour. Yeah. Like you're just delaying. They don't, yeah. you're, you're just, you know, stalling or delaying or dragging your feet, you know, and introducing these twists as a means of holding off the inevitable conclusion. So twists need to have a purpose <laughs> again. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also think a lot of these things that we're talking about are um, really ha- tend to happen in the middle, in the sagging middle. I do f- sometimes find that there are sometimes pacing issues in the beginning. I see this a lot more in manuscripts than I see it in published books, although it does still happen in published books. Um, but in a lot of the manuscripts I see, there are pacing problems at the beginning where people are starting way before the story actually starts. Mm-hmm. And we just have all this stuff to slog through before we get to the actual point of the story. And the reason I say that you don't see it in as many published books is because usually an editor will will take care of that for you. <laughs> Someone will help you out and will say, hey, you know, um, this isn't where your story starts and we need to fix that. Um, but I think that you know, people who are working on their first drafts or who are, you know, trying to get agents or, you know, think, thinking about books at that stage of publishing, um, I do think that pacing can be a problem in the beginning and that it's the, it's that sense of, again, of like waiting for the reason why we're reading this book. Why am I reading this book? And if you take too long to answer that initial question, then I'm going to just stop reading. I think if you look at pacing as you're writing, I tend to, there's a central conflict that is introduced in your first third somewhere. And then the end of the first act is basically a complication of that conflict. And then the middle of your book really should be a way to resolve the complication of your conflict. And then the last third of your book should more or less be the resolution of that conflict and the complication. So it should kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, the first two thirds of your book really should be there's the 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 conflict and then the complications. And then the last third of your book should be all the resolution. Now, there are books that have pacing issues at the end, books that feel particularly rushed at the mm-hmm. end. Yeah. Famously, Twilight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I. Yeah. Confession, you guys, i just not a Twilight person. So I have only ever read the first book and the last book. So Twilight and Breaking Dawn. 
Twilight was trying to read Twilight for me was like pulling teeth. <laughs> I was like, well, what happens? Nothing happens in this book. You know, she, she thinks about Edward. Now, this is just something that doesn't work for me because clearly Twilight works for bazillions for a lot of people. Of people, yep. It's this is a personal thing for me, and so you know, a lot of the. So, I mean, Twilight is also fairly enormous as a book, but um, you know, a lot of Twilight is spent just being unsure, just constantly unsure. What does Edward feel? What does you know? I, what does he think about me? Blah, blah, blah. And a lot of that takes up so much of the book and it doesn't actually move the story forward. It doesn't move really Bella and Edward's relationship forward until he reveals who he really is to her in the meadow scene. Now the meadow scene was the first time in twilight and it took me about five weeks to read this book. You guys, it takes me, that was a long time for me because I can usually read a book in one sitting. Um, to finally get to the meadow scene, I was like, Oh, this is interesting because this is a change in the status quo. And moreover, she's scared of him. And that, to me, is an interesting complication of essentially the simple conflict of does he like me? What does he think about me? I like him, but now I'm scared of him. But then that got resolved very quickly. So it, that tension died very quickly. And so between that point and to the point where she thinks her mom got kidnapped by a rival vampire, which is like literally the last... 50 pages of this book, I feel. Um, and it just didn't, it kind of came out of nowhere and it didn't feel like it was earned. And I didn't feel like, you know, it, what was the point of this, but to suddenly inject some danger into her mm -hmm. real danger or external danger, as opposed to the emotional danger of being scared of Edward, which to me would have been really interesting. Like she's, she's terrified of him. He's a monster. And then she's like, oh, no, but he'd never hurt me. So then all of that tension is gone. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think, I think pacing at the end of books when they're rushed is a, is a big problem. And I think, too, it tends to happen around, like, big action pieces. So things like battle scenes or big confrontations. And one of the things that's most frustrating for me, too, is that at the climax of books... Um, you're usually getting a lot of information. And if you're getting a lot of information and you're getting it too quickly, it's really easy for the reader to become confused. I have absolutely read books before where I've gone back and read the climax multiple times because I am I literally do not understand what is happening. The Battle of Hogwarts? Yeah. <laughs> I the first time I read the Battle of Hogwarts, I'm reading it, I'm flipping pages, and all of a sudden I stopped and I was like, wait. And I like went back three pages and I was like, is Lupin dead? Like, wait, like, because it's just, it's like a throwaway line. It's like Harry's running through the, the room and he sees Tonks and Lupin's lifeless bodies, you know, like laid out in the like, great hall. Yeah. yeah. And it's like one line. And I, and I did, I like read it and I like kept going. And I think I must've thought at first that they were like injured or something. And I got like a couple pages past it. And then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> so, like. <laughs> Go back. But I have read that in, in lots of battle scenes in fantasy books. Um, you know, in, in, in all kinds of, of situations like that, even if it's not like an actual battle, but if it's a big conflict with lots of people and lots of action happening and lots of things going on, um, it's exciting and it's a dynamic scene to write. But if you're writing it too fast and if we haven't if the book hasn't been well paced throughout, that means we're not getting a lot of information 
at the right time that we need it. So all of this important information is being dumped at us all at once in one big scene. And that's not really effective either. On so many levels, it's not effective because it's your clarity issues. You're going to have, you know, people missing things or misunderstanding things. And also it's not as satisfying or rewarding as a reader, if you don't have the information you need at the right time, like if, if you are properly, um, properly distributing information throughout your story so that the reader picks it up at proper moments, then your climax and your resolution is going to be more emotionally satisfying because the reader is invested and understand what's, what's going on. And if the reader doesn't have that information until the very end, it starts to feel a lot like deus ex machina. Like, wait, why, why didn't I know about this? Why, you know, and this isn't a twist. This is like when, when you just don't get something until it's happening, the author just doesn't give it to you until that final moment. And I, I'm not a fan of that. Yeah. At all. No, there is withholding information doesn't actually build tension. No. There's a difference between your characters not knowing, but withholding information is not the same thing as building tension. You're like, mm-hmm. I'm going to keep you in suspense. I'm going to, but that doesn't actually work if they don't know what's at stake. No. Um, actually, an example of this, I think, is actually the end of Avatar The Last Airbender, which, spoiler, you guys, I'm going to spoil the ending of the show for you. Aang, so we've been building up to this enormous confrontation with the big bad of the show, Fire Lord Ozai, who is hell-bent on taking over the, you know, the world, you know, with his firebending powers, and Aang, you know, who is the Avatar's the responsibility to stop him. Aang is also a pacifist. He grew up in a culture of people who just didn't condone violence at all. And so it, it's kind of established this well, what do I do? I have to face him and I have to stop him, but I don't know if I could bring myself to kill him, which is a really great conflict. You know, it really makes you invested in, in Aang and the outcome and like, what does he do? What does he do? What does he do? And spoiler, what he does is he takes away Fire Lord Ozai's ability to bend fire, which is a brilliant ending that was unfortunately not very well set up. <laughs> nope, still mad about it. And I love this show. I do. I love this uh-huh. show a lot. And I just, and I, you know, Kelly and I actually just recently rewatched it and we've got our Avatar podcast going on. And when I rewatched it, I was like, yeah, nope, nope. I, I thought maybe that they had seeded it the first time and I missed it. Nope. They just never did. <laughs> it was like four episodes from the end. They kind of sort of hint at it. Not even. And then at the very end, the, this enormous climactic moment, he takes away Ozai's bending. You're like, where did this come from? Yeah, what? <laughs> and they kind of try to like retrofit it back in. There's like a voiceover or something where like, oh, here's me explaining it to you in this scene that I've never shown anyone. <laughs> but it's like that, that really, it is deus ex machina. It's literally something coming in at the last minute to resolve um you know, a conflict and it's not, it's not satisfying as a reader because I, I, I feel cheated when I get to those moments and they're not, 
you know, properly seated or properly foreshadowed. And, and this is not to say that you need to telegraph everything early, that you can't have surprise endings or twist endings, but that they have to be believable and the groundwork has to be laid so that after the twist or the surprise, you go back and you read the book again and you can see, oh, yep, there it is. Oh, yep, there it is. Um, you know, we talked about this in our mystery podcast about how if you get to the end and you find out who done it and it's somebody that makes no sense within the context of the rest of the book, that's cheap. Yeah, that's cheating, to be honest, you know. And this is a another book that I have an issue with the ending, or the reveal, rather, is The Thief by Megan Whalen Turner. I love the Atolia books. It's The Thief, The Queen of Atolia, The King of Atolia, A Conspiracy of Kings, and now apparently a fifth book is coming out, which I'm super excited about. I love all of these books, but I kind of hate The Thief. <laughs> the Thief has the unreliable narrator, and I don't mind unreliable narr- narrators, but it's the first person unreliable narrator. And so you go through this entire book with Jen, and he's narrating the story to you, and at the very end, after the climax, he reveals to you what he has been withholding from you. I hate this a lot. She does not do this in other books. Um, it's just, and The Thief is actually the only one that's in first person. Parts of A Conspiracy of King are in first person, but like, the be- from beginning to end, The Thief is in first person. I hate this. And I'm like, that's, that's a cheap ending because it's not like Jen seeded these hints to us. It's not like he hinted, this is who I am. He just didn't tell you. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that so much. I, I actually had a, a little bit of a problem with that in the um, final Red Rising book. Um, there's a couple of scenes oh, yeah. where yeah. the care and, and, and I like what is happening um, and I won't, you know, go into details, but essentially the, it's not first person, it's third person. And the scene plays out in a particular way where all of these characters are behaving in this way and doing this thing. And then later you find out that they were all in on it. You know, they're breaking someone out of prison and he betrays them and it's this whole thing. And then later on you find out that everyone was in on it the whole time. That He knew he was going to be broken out. He didn't really betray them. It was an act. They knew that he wasn't really betraying them. It's like this whole big thing. And everybody knows except the reader. And so (laughs) I was like, everyone in this scene knows what is happening except for me. And so all that's being done is that the author is playing a trick on me. That sucks. I hate that. Um, So I didn't like that about Red Rising, but that wasn't the final complex, the climax. That wasn't the end of the book. That was just a weird section kind of in the late middle um, that bothered me. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like that deliberate withholding of information. And again, unreliable narrators are one thing. And we, that's a a time tested trope in fiction. Um, and some of them I really like and enjoy, but you have to be able to put the puzzle together, you know, and, and go through the book and be able to find those places where, oh, yep, he said this. And, you know, that can be read two ways. And, you know, if you don't, if you don't do that, it doesn't work at all. Do you have any examples of anybody that you think um, writes really well-paced action 
pieces? Like, is can you think of an action book or an action a scene in a fantasy or action se- sequence that you think was really well done and well paced? Well, all of Lee's Six of Crows and Crooked Kingdom. Yeah. Um, aside from Lee, I do think Marie Lu also wrote, writes really good action. Mm-hmm. I do think it is one of her strengths that she. What I actually really admire about Marie is that she's able to write action sequences clearly. Yep. <laughs> because a lot of times, a lot of people write action sequences, and I'm like, what just happened? What's huh? going on? What is that? <laughs> what? I actually compare this. So did you ever watch that really, really terrible movie, Troy? The one that's based yeah. on the Iliad? Yeah. The one with Brad Pitt? It is yeah, so I, bad. I, d- I didn't watch it all the way. I paid for a movie ticket and I walked out. It's the only movie I've ever walked out of. Uh, mine was Swim Fan. Anyway. Um, oh. <laughs> but I did watch Troy and that movie is unwatchable. Not because of the bastardization of the of Homer. Um, I can kind of deal with that, to be honest. That doesn't yeah. actually bother me all that much. But there are actually battle sequences in Troy that I have no idea what is going on. The way it is shot, the way it's filmed, the way, like, it, it just, there's no context to this battle, and there's no context to this ambush, and there's, like, and I don't know who's fighting who, I don't know who just got injured, I don't know anything. And a lot of times in books, a lot of people who do write action, it's just unclear. And I I don't have a real good sense of the the logistics essentially of what is happening, who did this, who moved here, who you know who did this action. Um, I think Marie does action extremely well in that way. I think she's extremely good at describing what is happening and the significance of that action. And that's really it. Like the significance is what's hard to convey more than the actual act of whatever it is. You know, like oh mm-hmm. he stabbed so and so. You can say that, but if you don't convey the significance of what this act means, then it's essentially, you know, meaningless. Yeah. And that's the thing about kind of segueing into a lot of books that the pacing feels rushed. And books where I feel the pacing is rushed often is an extremely plot-heavy book that doesn't give us time to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. You need time to process conflicts and complications and events and relationships. Like the reader needs that and the characters need that because if things are just relentlessly happening and the characters never process those things and the reader never processes those things, how can you have, you know, a successful story? (laughs) Yeah. The, you know, as I said about context, a lot of ac- the action just needs context, and if you just have action scene after action scene after action scene after action scene with no time taken for the context of what just happened to not just sink in for the reader, but for the characters to process what just happened, ultimately everything feels rushed, and you don't have character development. Now, mm-hmm. a lot of people do read just to see what happens in a book. And sometimes it depends on the book. I do that too, where I'm more interested in the resolution of the plot than I am of the character's journey. That's not normally how I read, but you know, certain mysteries and thrillers, I'm less invested Mm -hmm. necessarily in character growth and journey than like, you know, the answer to the question essentially. Um, 
But even then, those books that aren't character development, it's a really, it's a parceling out of information, you know, so you're dropping bits of information and then kind of allowing people to process that information. If not directly, then at least to let that sink in at the back of the mind. And it's the same thing with action sequences. You drop an action sequence the way you would parcel out information and then let everybody process that and build up to the next action sequence so you care, so you have stakes, Mm -hmm. so you know what you have to lose or what the characters have to lose. And therefore, the emotional significance of the next action sequence isn't sort of, it doesn't become white noise, essentially. Mm -hmm. Which is often books that I feel like because I rarely say a book is too fast-paced. That's not an op- an adjective I use all that often, but I do say things are rushed. Yeah. That if they, you know, if a character if the author just taking the time to slow down and give me a reason to care. Mm-hmm. Because action doesn't make you care. It's that myth of, you know, where you start with action. But if you start with action and you're given no context, then you're like, "Well, why do I care about this?" Right. Stuff like that the the what they call on TV the cold open. Stuff like that works on TV, but it doesn't always work for books. Because you're like, well, you're dropped in the middle of this action sequence. And I'm like, but why do I care about this if I don't know right. who's in it and why? You know, you know, you start a book with somebody running away from someone in the middle of the night, and you're kind of like, okay, well, someone's in danger, but who is it? Who um, is it? Yeah. So I think Tamara Pierce does really good action sequences. She does. I think she does do very good action sequences. Um, particularly, I think I love the Alana books. So I always think of the Alana mm-hmm. books first. Um, and you know, at the end of each book, she kind of has like a big confrontation. Um, and of course the Alana books are a little bit unusual in that, Apparently, Tamara Pierce intended to write them all as one book, mm-hmm. or it was written as one book, and then her editor was like, nope, we're going to split this up. <laughs> um, but I still think that each book is well-paced, you know, because mm-hmm. the first book, the conflict is Alana is a girl, and she wants to become a knight, but only boys are allowed to become knights, so the conflict is that she has to hide her sex to, you know, pursue her dream. Um, and then it's almost, if you look at it as like one big book, the act break starts to make sense because the Uh end and the complication of the conflict in book one is that her, I guess it's her squire. He's her squire then. Jonathan's her squire then. Discovers that she's a girl. So there's the complication. So she, now it's not a secret anymore, but he promises to keep the secret. And then these, this, keeping the her identity a secret, but then it gets complicated even further by romance, essentially, in the second book. And then at the end of the second book, this big action sequence happens, and during this climactic battle, where she kind of defeats her big, big bad, it's revealed to everyone that she's female. And so, you know, now the complication and the conflict is how to get people to accept her as a woman knight, you know, as opposed to having to hide her gender, she's now living openly as a female knight. And how do you get the realm to, to accept it for that? So I do think that, you know, each individual book is paced pretty well, but they're fairly short. 
you know, Tamara Pierce published these books in the era of children's publishing where they were like 200 pages max. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can't, you can't write beyond that. So, so each, you know, they're a little bit episodic, I think, but it overall builds pretty well. So I, I do mm-hmm. think I agree. Tamara does, does action sequences really well too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know, do we have any further thoughts about pacing, about what to keep in mind? Um, I think, you know, just to reiterate, the the most important thing, fast or slow, is like, I think the way to think about pacing is to think about the way you are parceling out information. And, you know, that we give different bits of information at different parts of the story and that that's what you want to think about. You know, if you're struggling with pacing or if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, well, how do I know, you know, if my pacing is good or bad or whatever, think about, you know, not necessarily the plot points or the emotional beats, but just like the bits of information that are, you know, being, distributed throughout your story? Are they concentrated in one area? Is there a whole section of your book that doesn't have any new information where nothing is changing, where everything is static? You know, kind of try to look at the landscape overall. And essentially you want to see a pretty even spread. You don't want any one place that is concentrated with too much stuff and you don't want any one place that is barren of anything. Yeah. That's pretty sound advice. Sweet. <laughs> so, uh, what are you working on? <laughs> um, I, t- <laughs> I started working on uh, a short story. <laughs> I started working on uh, a piece of erotica which is never anything that I've ever written before. Well, you didn't um, write erotic fan fiction when you were a teenager? Because I did. I did not write erotic fan fiction as a teenager. I read erotic fan fiction as a teenager, but I did not write any. Um, and to be perfectly honest, I, I have no idea why I'm writing this piece. Um, it's fun. I'm enjoying myself. Um, I haven't gotten to writing any of the actual sex yet. So we'll see how how that changes once I get there. Um, but essentially, it, it started out as a fun little um, exercise for me. I have a friend who writes erotica um, as a side job and makes money off of it and does quite well and enjoys it. And I've been listening to her um, talk about that side business for a while. And I just got curious. And I was like, you know, I wonder if if I could write an erotic short story. I, I short stories were for a long time my medium. JJ hates them. And, well, that's just because I'm uh, bad at them. <laughs> and but I was good at them, which you know might uh, give us a window into why I'm struggling with the long form novel. Uh, but short stories were always something that that I felt comfortable with as a as a method of storytelling, um, and so. I've never written an, ero- an erotic one, and I thought, you know, why don't I? Why don't I try? So I, I'm working on that right now, and I am also working on um, my novel. I was working on that a little bit last night while watching Game One of the World Series. Um, I have started doing some 
what is that reason? You have a specific word for it when you're doing like tone research mm-hmm. for your, tone for research, your yeah. books. Yeah. Where I'm not, I'm not researching, you know, specific places or things or, you know, anything, but I'm, I'm engaging in media that is similar to the tone of the, the tone that I want for my own work. So I've been doing a lot more of that and it's actually really inspired me to work on that more. So I'm kind of juggling two projects right now. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Yeah. You know yeah, the answer still, to mine, so yeah, book two. Yeah, we can we can move on. <laughs> Have you read anything? Um, actually, no. Uh, well, yes, um, I read all of Saga that's available in like a fugue state. To be honest, um, so people have been recommending Saga to me, uh, rightfully because it's excellent, and I just hadn't had time to get around to it, and um, so. Roshni, Chokshi, and I were actually wandering around our town, and we stopped by a comic book store, and I was like, oh, well, you know, now that I'm here, I might as well pick up a volume of Saga and start reading it. I, it's only, it's like only 192 pages long or something like that, and I was just, just like, I need more. I, I just, I need more. And so I went and I bought all six that are out, and so I thought, okay, I'm just going to read this. And, you know, it's a kind of like a palate cleanser. But, like, I sat down and did not get up until I finished all 36 issues. Because, <laughs> you know, there's six volumes of six issues each. So I, I mm-hmm. read all 36 kind of just, like, from start to finish, beginning to end. I can't, I cannot overstate <laughs> how much I love these comics. They're so good. <laughs> I I have not had an emotional hangover this bad in 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 such a long time. I just I I I cry fairly easily in movies, less so in books, but I can't lie, I sobbed in every volume. And it's not necessarily because it's sad, it's just mm-hmm. emotional. And basically the basic premise of saga is that it's like a sort of a fantasy space opera type of thing, you know, so the main characters live on, uh, they're like two races, one with wings and the, and kind of different sort of wing, they're winged people, and then the other are, have horns, so like like ram's horns or antlers or things like that, and the horned people live on the moon, wreath, and then the winged people live on the planet, landfall, and these two races have been locked in a war for generations. And our two protagonists are uh, Alana and Marco, and they're from opposite sides of the war, but they fall in love and they start a family kind of by accident. You know, she gets pregnant and they have a baby. So essentially, they are on the run from people who want to kill them because they're traitors to each of their respective causes, and also they need to keep their daughter a secret because she's essentially an abomination, or they consider Hazel and Abomination. So it's really a story about family. It's also romance, you know, because it's, you know, about the romance between Alana and Marco, but it's also really a story about parenthood, like early parenthood. It's, it's quite funny. This is like all my, all my buttons. Oh, you should read these. You should read these. Um, there's, it's so good. And I basically bawled my eyes in every single volume. There's also a character in there named Goose who is a little harp seal. He's like a bipedal harp seal. Oh. He's so cute. He's, and I'm just like, oh, it's like it has a white harp. 
I have a little stuffed seal named White Harps. It's like, oh, I just, I love this series, you guys. I, like I said, I just cannot recommend them enough. So if you have not read Saga, please go out and read Saga because I, I need to talk to people about this. So yeah, that, that's what I've been reading How about you. Ah, oh, I'm still reading Eligible. Um, I have started writing a little bit more this uh, week and just other life stuff. My sister was in town and um, so I just haven't had as much time to read. So still reading Eligible, still enjoying it. Um, waiting, waiting, waiting for my library holds to come through. <laughs> so that's about it. What about other media? So this week... Today, actually, I started another true crime podcast called Accused. Um, so this is in the vein of the first season of Serial. There is an investigative reporter from a Cincinnati newspaper, and she is investigating a cold case. It's the murder of a young woman named Elizabeth Andy. I think it's Andy. Uh, Andy's. Um, she... In 1978, she was found dead in her apartment. She had been strangled to death and then stabbed multiple times. And what ended up happening was that the police department focused on her boyfriend at the time, got him to confess to the crime, and then this case went to trial and he was acquitted because there was no other evidence really that could place him and that nothing really matched up. So the, the jury acquitted him. Then the case went to a civil case and he was acquitted again. So officially the story is that this is a cold case. The police still think that the boyfriend did it and are very reluctant to kind of pursue other avenues to see what happened. So this investigative reporter is kind of investigating how you know, they went about it, who they asked, who other potential suspects might be. Um, so it is kind of very much in the vein of Serial. Um, and it's actually, it's pretty good. And I, you know, sort of binging that while I was at work today. So that's kind of what I'm working on. About you? I watched Practical Magic. Yay! First time. This was, <laughs> um, this was some tone research for my book, even though I didn't know it was going to be tone research, but JJ knew it was going to be, and that's why she told me <laughs> to watch it. Practical Magic is a movie that came out when I was in high school, and I somehow never, ever saw it. Um, I didn't go see it in theaters. I never saw it on TV. I never saw it at sleepovers or with my friends or anything like that. It just, it never crossed my path. It's that's a tragedy. It is a tragedy, it is, but I'm also glad that I watched it now because I think I appreciated it in a way that I may not have if I had seen it in my youth. Um, I mean, I've heard uh, and since read critiques of this movie or, you know, reviews that came out at the time that point out this or that issue or this or that thing. And like, whatever, objectively, I'm sure they're all valid. I don't care. This is a great, great, great movie. Uh, it is funny. It is 
deeply weird. Um, it is sexy. Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock have amazing hair. Oh my God. Yeah. (laughs) It's witchy and it's just, it's just really super, super great. So if you haven't seen Practical Magic yet, um, absolutely get on that. It was on Netflix when I watched it this week, but I think I read somewhere that it's coming down this month. So hurry up and get on that while that is still available or find it somewhere else, buy it. It's worth it. Um, so I watched Practical Magic and I loved every second of it. So, so, so good. So funny. Uh, I finished Stranger Things Yay. and that was also excellent. I did really enjoy that one too. And I think that's everything. I don't think I've seen anything else new or no new podcasts, no new nothing else. Yeah. I I intend to start Black Mirror cuz the third season of Black Mirror is now available on Netflix. If you guys not have not seen Black Mirror, I actually do highly recommend it. It is an anthology show, so it's not necessarily like a show that has uh the same cast of characters. And it's an overarching story. It's an anthology. The closest analog that I can give is that it's like the Twilight Zone. And it's really each episode focuses on an aspect of technology or social media. And just kind of explores that and how that you know affects who we are as humans and how we interact with each other. I know a lot of people do think that it is horror. And I won't lie that... A lot of these episodes are unsettling, but I also find them unsettling in the same way or in a very similar way that the Twilight Zone could be unsettling. Um, it's not necess- it's not scary in that sort of jump cut way. It's not scary mm-hmm. in a slasher kind of a way. Black Mirror, the Black Mirror refers actually to your screen. So like your computer screen when it's not on or your television screen when it's not on or your mm-hmm. phone screen when it's not on. It's the black mirror of our society. These are excellent. I do love them. It's not completely consistent in quality, but I do believe it's because there are different directors and writers and doing each episode because it's an anthology. Um, so I'm super excited to see where the third season goes. Um, so if you have not seen it, I, I do highly recommend it. So that's that nice all right so then we can move on to our next segment which is what you were asking so we did i got a, a question from twitter from amaya mm. shakti and they asked if y'all did an ep- episode on outlining that would be fab or pantsing i suppose and revising after <laughs> so i really can't speak to outlining because every time i try I never stick to it. So, and everything I write to me is a constant surprise. Kelly can attest to. I'm, you know, I'm writing a book too, and I've, you know, she's read parts of it, and I'm just like, as literally as I was writing some of these scenes, I was like, really, is this happening? <laughs> I did not know this. So my hind brain surprise uh, supplies a lot of different things. I did write a post on Pub Crawl about reverse outlining. If you are a mm. pantser. I do believe that people who... The, the fundamental difference between pantsers and plotters is simply how they like to get the story out. Pantsers 
like to get the story out as they're doing. They they learn by doing, essentially. Whereas plotters tend to like to sit down and then figure out figure it out before they commit to paper. And that's really uh-huh. just, I think, the, the difference. Because the creative process is going to be the same. You're creating a story regardless of whether or not you think about it beforehand or as you do it on the page. I think the difference is in revision. Because often... The things that the pantser has to think about in revision is making sure everything makes sense. <laughs> that what you've put onto the page, that these relationships or these plot happenings have some sort of logical flow to it, logical trajectory to it. So for me, reverse outlining basically means rereading my manuscript and kind of jotting down in a separate column what happens in each scene. And then when I look at what happens in each scene, and by doing that, I can figure out what the point of each scene is. Like this scene, okay, so this scene further develops the relationship between these two characters. Or this scene shows what the consequences of this decision is in in the greater world. You know, that sort of thing. And so when I figure out what each scene does essentially then I can either rearrange, rewrite, trim, combine, consolidate as necessary. So that's what I that's what I do when I reverse outline a book. I think for plotters a lot of times revision is fleshing out or smoothing over, you know, or you know, as as opposed to what I feel like pants revision process for pantsers is <laughs> Finding order in chaos, I think what it is for plotters is that you have that you build on bones or, you know, that you breathe life into it. You know, so you have Mm -hmm. a skeleton of something and then you breathe and, you know, you you give it life. You know, you fill things out. You deepen relationships with the characters. You, um, you know, you change or tweak motivations here and there to make sure it makes sense, you know, so the next plot thing that happens just doesn't come out of nowhere. A lot of things like that. So as as far as outlining, I think you would have to ask somebody who is an outliner, which is not me. (laughs) But as far as revision goes, that is, that is what I can, what I can advise you is basically just write it first, then sit down and figure out what you just wrote. I mean, when you think about movies, essentially, or as Kelly had mentioned before, a documentary, when you turn the, the camera on, you just sort of record everything. But then you have all this raw raw footage, essentially, and what do you do with it? You have to edit it. You have to craft it together, revise it to tell the story that you want to tell. So an excellent documentarian, you know, gets a lot of it, but then the film is made in the editing room. So as a pantser, it's kind of the same thing. You have all of this raw material there, but the book gets made during revisions. Although I think the book gets made during revisions, whether you are a pantser or a plotter, to be honest. (laughs) No one writes perfect first drafts, or if they do, I hate them all. Yeah. Yeah. I just looked in the email, and we actually got one as a comment on um, our previous podcast episode. Hi, Kelly and JJ. This is from Emily. I am getting ready for NaNoWriMo by outlining and working through the details of my story. 
It is a retelling of Much Ado About Nothing set at Comic-Con. I have created several fandoms of my own that my story will revolve around, but I'm wondering how I go about mentioning other fandoms that really exist. Am I overstepping the fair use bounds if I just casually mention fandoms like Harry Potter, Doctor Who, Firefly, and yes, even Hamilton? Do I just need to create parodies of them, or should I keep creating my own to make my setting work? Um, in terms of a fair use question, there's... So there's a couple ways that you could go about this, right? If you have a story set at Comic-Con and the plot is going to revolve around your own characters with your own made-up fandoms of whatever, you know, created property that you've invented in this universe, that's going to be the bulk of what you're talking about. And while you're at Comic-Con, you're talking about seeing, you know, other panels or other attendees dressed up you know, in costume, um, or cosplaying, or, you know, you're, you're talking about kind of like the setting, it sounds like, and enriching your Comic-Con set within your story by peppering it with these existing fandoms. Um, if you were to do that, you can mention it without really mentioning it. So you can talk about, you know, someone was dressed as a boy wizard with a lightning scar and a red and gold striped scarf. And then you haven't actually said the words Harry Potter, but everyone reading your book will know that that character that was walking by was dressed as Harry Potter. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is that um, a lot of times in certain instances, you can mention these things um, because you're just naming the property. You're not using those characters. You're not necessarily quoting from the property. You're not necessarily, um, you know, incorporating it into your own work in any way other than mentioning that it exists. So that is certainly possible. Um, the thing that you want to be careful of is making sure that you don't position these properties as endorsing any particular thing. Um, you don't want to make it, you know, if this was, this is the same case with like celebrities or with real people that you might be, you know, putting in the background of your book or name dropping or whatever, that's fine. So long as it doesn't appear that they are, you know, that, that by putting them in there, they're endorsing it or by putting it in there, you're aligning yourself with them. You have to be really careful about the ways in which it's done. Um, so it's one of those complicated answers where is it possible to do and to do it and be fine? It is. Um, is it easier to maybe just not bother? Probably. <laughs> um, well, it, mentioning these properties, I think, is fine. And yeah. You're just like... Because if the plot is much to do about nothing, you're really going to be focused on your created fandom and your characters mm -hmm. in it. So it's not really going to be a huge issue. If they go to Comic-Con, I think mentioning all sorts of other fandoms is fine. You're not mm -hmm. using that fictional property in any sort of way. You know, you're not adding to it. You're not taking that established material and making it your own. You're basically just saying, my universe, in my Exists. universe. Yeah. It, you know, it contains Harry Potter and Doctor Who and everything else. Um, the book Fangirl by Rainbow Roll mm -hmm. is about a girl in college who writes fan fiction. She and her twin were BNFs, as we used to call them, big name fans. Um, and she writes fan fiction for a fictional property called Simon Snow. 
And it's very clearly, like, thinly veiled Harry Potter. But this universe also exists. In this universe, Harry Potter also exists. Um, you know, and that's mentioned, you know. It, it's mentioned. It's not in... So, it's not like a parody of Harry Potter or anything. It's clearly just like, Harry Potter also exists alongside Simon Snow. Oh, yeah. And in a lot of YA books and stuff, too, a character will say, like, oh, Harry Potter's my favorite book or something. And all of that is fine. Just just mentioning that it is a thing within the world is totally fine. Yeah, I think when you refer to these properties as the pop culture elements that they are, that, I think, is fine. Because when you mention pop culture, you know, it will date your work. You know, that is the thing about mentioning pop culture of any age. But when you're referring to things that people are consuming or that people are familiar with, that's not an infringement of any kind, really. You're just referring to an established property. So I think as long as you're not essentially making up, you know, content for these established properties, like, so, for example, say they go to a Doctor Who panel and the newest Doctor is there and they have an interview with a plot, blah, 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 that's probably pushing it. But to say that Doctor Who fans were there and that people were dressed as the 11th Doctor or so-and-so had a long multicolored scarf, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you can pepper those sort of references in it because you're not creating new content for it. I think you should be fine as long as you mostly stay within your own created fandom. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. All right. I don't think we have any other further, any other questions, but as Kelly and I mentioned, if you do have questions to ask us on Twitter, you can certainly tag us or uh, tag it with hashtag ask So we can search that and ask and see if you guys have any questions that you didn't directly tag us in. So then we can go to our last segment, which is what you are saying. This review is from ANAT4321. Superb listening. I've been a longtime fan of Pub Crawl and have enjoyed every episode I've listened to. JJ and Kelly are clearly knowledgeable and love the art and business of publishing YA. Definitely would recommend to anyone aspiring to the traditional publishing route. So thank you, ANAT4321. Um, I am sorry we don't actually have that much more information about self-publishing. It's not, um, I don't actually know a lot of people who do self-publish, but maybe in the future we can get somebody who does and, uh-huh. uh, you know, interview them, ask them, and see what, how the business is different. Um, as Kelly and I mentioned before, too, that YA in particular is not necessarily all that conducive to self-publishing. Um, but certainly romance and erotica and a lot of other genre fiction is. So maybe maybe your friend who self-publishes her erotica. Yeah, I'll see what she... She might want to come on under like a pseudonym or something. Her <laughs> pen name. Her pen name. That is fine. So, all right. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be continuing the writing mechanics series with tone and mood. So, as always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it does help other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. 
You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram or my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.